We, if you're visiting with us today or here for the first time, you, you'll you'll be joining us partway through uh, a series that we've begun in the Old Testament book of Exodus. This is actually the last one for now because we're going to pause until the new year and we're going to be doing some more Christmassy themed things starting next Sunday. Um, but we're working our way through this amazing book. And uh, last week I showed you, if you were here, a summary of how chapter 5 and into chapter 6 hangs together. Um, and we saw that in chapter 5, and that, that there's this like frustration and disappointment for Moses. We, we got a hint of it when Jane read to us there just from verse 19. God's people at this moment are suffering terribly in slavery in Egypt. And sent by God, this is not Moses' own idea, God sends him to Pharaoh and Moses confronts Pharaoh for the first time in chapter 5. And instead of Pharaoh freeing the Israelites, he turns up the heat. And instead of things getting better... Mo, he, Pharaoh makes their work impossible and things get much worse and even the people he's been sent to save the Israelites of that time turn on Moses in chapter 5 and they're, they're basically saying Moses you promised you promised us that our pain would end we don't trust a word that you say anymore and so Moses here, rejected by Pharaoh and then attacked by his friends, finds himself in this horrible, devastating, lonely moment. Unexpected disappointment. Well, last week I, I suggested that chapter 5 paints some vivid pictures for us of the terrible evil that God saves us from. And if you weren't here, you can listen to that or all of our talks online if you want to catch up. But I also promised last week that this week we would think more about what this crushing experience felt like for Moses. And we're going to see something of the stunning reassurance that God gives to Moses here in chapter 6, even though he himself at this point doesn't even get that. But my hope today, and this is our title for today, is that we'll see how God leads his people through disappointment. So last week, the evil that God saves us from, you can catch up on that. This week, the disappointment that God leads his people through. So let's have a little think first about what I want to call the shape of Moses' disappointment Sometimes in life, things don't work out the way we hope, do they? I don't think I have to underline that for, for any of you, do I? And sometimes when that happens, we often just don't understand why. Unexplained suffering. Cruel injustice. Bitter regrets, shattered dreams, painful unfairness, grievous loss. Why is it that in life our questions so often far outnumber any kind of answers? If that was on a scale. The questions would be like down here and the answers feel like they're... And this is exactly where Moses is in verse 22 of chapter 5. Do keep your Bible open if you've got one or on your phone or a tablet if you've brought one. Look down at verse 22, chapter 5. As Moses cries out in anguish to God. Oh Lord, 
Why? That's, that's his heart in this moment. Why? Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought nothing but trouble upon this people. And you, you, Lord, have not rescued your people at all. Wow. I I, I want to suggest that Moses here is in the grip of despair and he's on the brink of totally unraveling. Isn't he? And I, I want to suggest that, that there are at least three parts here that we can see to Moses' frustration and disappointment here. And um, maybe this resonates for you. Here's three things. Number one, Moses is saying, what's wrong with the world? Isn't he? It, trouble is the word that Moses describes this desperate situation here. Oh, Lord, it's all so very hard. It all seems so deeply unfair. Why is it that there are brutal kings? Why do they get away with it? Why do innocent people suffer? Things shouldn't be like this. It's all so heartbreaking and wrong. Oh, God, what's wrong with the world? You hear that in Moses' prayer? But the second thing is that Moses prays here is, what's wrong with God? What's wrong with God? It's almost like Moses comes to God and is like, what's wrong with you? Moses, as we all do at times, rakes over the question of whose fault is this? Who's to blame for this? Moses knows that Pharaoh is the tyrant who took all their straw and then beat them for not making enough bricks. Moses knows that Pharaoh's the bully. But for Moses here, God is not off the hook either, is he? Did you notice how many times Moses in this prayer says, you or your, oh Lord, why have you brought trouble? upon this people is this why you you sent me I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name and you you Lord you haven't rescued them you 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 you, it's hard in that as well I know Pharaoh's the bad guy Lord but why haven't you stopped him One writer puts it this way, as bold as it sounds, Moses believes that God not doing anything is just as bad as the horrific things that Pharaoh is doing. God's omission is as crushing as Pharaoh's commission. You get that? And Moses' questions here They're more than questions. This is almost an accusation, isn't it? Dare we say that Moses is bordering on being rude to God here? God, you have not kept your promise. This is your fault, Lord. What on earth are you playing at? But I think there's a third thing here to see in the shape of Moses' disappointment. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with you, God? The third thing is, What's wrong with me? I think when things go wrong, sometimes it can shake, deeply and profoundly shake our sense of identity too. You, you ever experience things going wrong and, you, and, and the, you, you think, if only I'd done something different, this wouldn't have happened. If only I'd done something different this could have been avoided remember too that Moses spent a long time in chapter 3 telling God that he couldn't do this do you remember that seems about 3 years ago now doesn't it chapter 3 
he spent a long time trying to persuade God that he couldn't do it. And now, when he finally does do it, what happens? It all goes pear-shaped. And Moses is like, I think in this prayer, Moses is like, I knew this would happen, God. Why didn't you listen to me? I told you to send someone else, not me. You could have, you should have, God, asked someone else to do this. Can you hear him? He's, I'm a lousy failure who can't do anything right. This is the shape of his disappointment in this moment. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with you, God? And underneath it all, what's wrong with me? In sheer anguish, Moses flings this raw, explosive outburst in God's face. Isn't the Bible realistic and relatable and up to date? But how will God respond to this? I want us to see three ways. Three ways in which God leads Moses. That's the word. How God leads Moses through this moment of crushing disappointment. First of all, we're just going to make two observations about, which are essentially about how God handles Moses in this moment. We'll see how God handles him. And then we'll spend some time, maybe a little bit more time, if I don't get carried away on the first two, unpacking the logic of God's reassuring words to him in chapter 6. I want to get there and spend a bit more time on that. So first of all, let's see how God handles Moses and this crushing disappointment. And I want to suggest, first of all, that God is receptive to Moses' bewildered questions. Now, I, I, I want to pause here first before we get to what, to, to what God does. It is important that we don't miss here the fact that in his distress, Moses goes straight to God. And I, I want to say, by the way, I just want to, I just want to caveat this. We're, we're talking here about spiritual principles, and it, and if if there is someone here who is experiencing something that is not normal, I, I am not saying that you should just go to God. If someone is hating you. You need to talk to someone. So don't mishear me in what I'm saying today. These are principles that are for all of us. But if something is happening to you that is beyond that, don't mishear what I'm saying today, okay? Come and talk to me afterwards if, if, if that is you. But I don't want us to miss the fact that Moses, in his distress, goes straight to God. This is a good principle. One writer suggests that Moses begins a long tradition here of truth-telling. And truth talking in biblical prayer. Imagine a prayer meeting where people prayed like this. Where people talked to God like this. That would shock us all, wouldn't it? One writer says here Moses employs no nice cliches here. He has failed, he's discouraged, rejected, confused, and bewildered by God's apparent withdrawal and God's apparent unwillingness to become involved with his people's desperate needs. Why? But his impulse in this great discouragement is to go to God and pour out his heart. There are so many examples of this in Scripture. <clears throat> Abraham did it. The prophet Samuel's mother, Hannah, did it. King David did it. Job did it. The prophet Jeremiah did it. Even John the Baptist in the Gospels did it. And I'm not just giving you a list there. I've got all the references to those stories written down here. If you want to if you want to see the references to look them up, come and see me afterwards. And there are many others as well. This impulse to go to God is a good impulse. Is this 
our impulse when we're bewildered. But the point is that God can cope with Moses' anguished questions. God doesn't strike him down or punish him for being blasphemous. I find it interesting that when the Israelite foreman complained to Moses earlier on in chapter in verse 21, Moses is understandably shaken to his very core. But when Moses protests to God, God is not so fragile in his self-esteem that he can't handle being questioned. You get that? And last week we saw Pharaoh being rebellious towards God, shaking his fist in God's face. But I, I think this is different here with Moses. In Pharaoh, there was an angry defiance. But here in Moses, there's bewildered heartbreak. Those two things are different, aren't they? They're coming from a different place. One is saying, I hate you, God. The other is crying out to God with, why? I think Moses here is not so much complaining about God, but pouring out his complaint to God. And it's true that Moses, in his searing honesty, is right on the edge of being bang out of order here. But God is not so brittle that he shatters at this critique. Hear this. God listens to him. God listens to him. I came across another writer who I thought very helpfully says this. this is, what Moses does here, this is not atheism. This is not even rejection of God, but a bearing of the emotions to the Almighty. What a lovely line that is. This is a bearing of the emotions to the Almighty. And wherever this happens, it does not bring swift retaliation from Yahweh. Actually, it provides a means of working through real emotions this is the biblical way of dealing with anger and frustration rather than suppressing it. I think it is very wonderful and perhaps even surprising to see that God is attentive to the anguished cries of his people. So there's observation number one in how God handles him. Second observation is this. God is also patient with Moses and his imperfect understanding. This is a slightly different thing. I, I think it's obvious to us that Moses here is immersed in his own story. You know, he, he's... he's as we all are when we face crushing disappointment, you know, all he can see is what's going wrong. He's immersed in it, he's, he's drowning in it. And I think that shapes how he listens to God and how he acts in this moment. So let, let, me, try and, let me try and show you what I mean. We, we're reading a little bit between the lines here, but for example, God had told Moses beforehand that Pharaoh would not say yes. God, God told Moses that God would not say yes. But then Moses in chapter 5 seems to fall apart in shock and surprise when that actually happens. So it's almost like Moses is not quite hearing what God says accurately somehow. But we could go further than this and say that when Moses confronts Pharaoh... He actually doesn't exactly do and say what God told him to do and say. So let, let me compare quickly with you what God set, tells him to do and what he actually does. And you, 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 you see what you think. Um, when God first tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, that, that conversation happens in chapter 3. This is chapter 3 in verse 18. This is what God says. You and the elders of Israel 
are to go to go to the king of Egypt. I think I'm using a slightly different version. Sorry, king of Egypt, and say to him, "The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to our God." Okay, that's what God said to Moses in chapter three. Let's read again verse one of chapter five and see what Moses actually does. This is, this is what we read. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Can you see any differences here between what God said they should say and do and what they actually did? Well, first of all, God told them to take the elders. Where are the elders in chapter five? Only Moses and Aaron show up. I mean, the text doesn't say they weren't there, so maybe they were. But uh, I mean, I, th- I think if they were there, th- we, you know, the text would say that. Then God instructed them to explain that God had met with them and he'd spoken to them and that they needed to talk in terms of a three-day journey. And they just seemed to barge in with, let my people go. You, you get the point? You, One commentator claims that God's language in chapter 3 actually is courteous and diplomatic, but Moses' language somehow becomes abrasive in your face confrontation. To to me, it seems almost as if Moses is like, I don't really want to do this job, but I will. But then he kind of psychs himself up into this kind of, he, he rises to the challenge and then tries to do it on his own. But in all of this, he fails to hear what God's saying to him properly and he takes the wrong negotiating party he uses more combative language even asks for a slightly different thing but it unravels even worse when pharaoh dismissively rejects their request in verse 2 this is in chapter 5 moses then at first seems to remember what god oh yeah god did talk about a three-day journey But then he had something that God had never said at all. At the end of chapter 5, verse 3, if you don't let us go, Pharaoh, God might strike us down with plagues or a sword. In the moment, God makes God out to be vindictive, almost to try and evoke Pharaoh's pity. And I'm not sure whether to read that... as a, as a kind of pathetic, you know, he realises the game's up. I, I've made a complete mess of this. And, it, and he's like, oh, Pharaoh, please let us go. Our God's going to hate us. It's, it's almost like it's like a... Either way, Pharaoh just tells him to get lost. <laughs> but my point is that Moses, in this moment, somehow manages to do the right thing in the wrong way. And what I want us to see, this is what I want us to see, is how patient God is with him. Even when Moses doesn't stick to the script. How easy it would be for God in this moment to say, what were you doing, Moses? I gave you the script. Well, why did you go off piste? Moses is understanding He's limited, he's, he's drowning in this moment and somehow he's not quite listening to God. Later on, in, in about 10 years time, we'll get to chapter 34 of Exodus at this rate, won't we? But later on in chapter 4, God will tell Moses what his name means. Uh, and th- this is what God says to Moses much, much later. He says to Moses, I am the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God listen to this line slow to anger just let that settle slow to anger abounding abounding in love and faithfulness can you sense in these chapters how slow to anger God is? Patient. Patient. But I also want us to see so I, 
something, there's something here about the fact that God isn't just tolerating Moses, but he's also skillfully shaping and forming and developing his character. At this point in the story, Moses is not yet the leader that he'll, he'll become. But he's also not what he was. You get that? He's, he's not yet what he will be. But in this moment, he's not what he was. Do you remember in chapter one, when Moses acts impulsively, what does he do? What does he do? He runs away. But here, when things go wrong, what does he do? He runs to God. Isn't that progress? He's a different person here to what he was then. And yet, he's not quite yet what he will be. What I'm trying to get across here is that God is not faced by Moses' weakness. Moses' imperfect understanding doesn't knock God off his stride or derail God's plans. And even when, God man even when Moses manages to get it right and wrong at the same time, God isn't irritable and cranky, but totally and utterly in control. God can handle him. I think one of the challenges for us when things go wrong is that so often we can feel guilty and we can blame ourselves and we feel that God is somehow displeased with us. But what that means in practice, I, I know what this feels like, I'm sure you do. What that means in practice is that instead of running to him, we, we, we avoid and hide from him because we, we, we think in our hearts that he's cross with us. We have this image of a frustrated God somehow standing over us, frowning with a clipboard, recording all our faults. And that our disappointing circumstances are just his way of getting back at us for doing something stupid. Those of us who know the Lord Je those of us who are trusting in Jesus know that at the cross, God offered his son, the Lord Jesus, to be punished for our sins and therefore to take our guilt away and that means that there is no there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our weakness and our failures are not a surprise to him and i want to say that god delights for his children to put all of their burdens into a great big wheelbarrow and bring them to him. And like Moses, we may not yet be what we will be, but we are also not what we once were. We know that God can handle all things, but isn't it liberating to know that he can also handle us? even when we don't quite get things right. I wasn't going to say this, but I will. The striking thing to underline in this narrative is that it's actually Pharaoh who's the ruthless slave master. Don't forget that. In, the, in this narrative, it's Pharaoh who's the slave master, not God. God is not the problem in this chapter. He's the solution. And the madness for Moses here feels colossal. It almost causes Moses to unravel. But the truth is that God in this moment is not absent, but kind and patient with him in his distress. I think this is something for us to cling to when we face disorientating challenges in our own lives. I wanted to show you, you know these words of Jesus. 
Think of Pharaoh, the ruthless slave master. This is what Jesus says he is like. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light be encouraged then with these first two observations that even in our crushing disappointments god is both receptive to our bewildered questions and he's he's patient with our imperfect current understanding But if that's how God handles Moses, let's turn next to see something of the logic of God's actual stunning words to him in chapter 6. Are you still with me? Good. This is the final point, but it's longer than the other two. Okay. I'm just like, not not too long, but you know, it's (laughs) number three. Here's number three. God is faithful in fulfilling all of his promises. This is the burden of God's words to Moses in chapter 6. I said earlier that Moses here is immersed in his own story, but I think what happens in chapter 6 is that God seeks to reassure him by drawing Moses up into a much bigger story, a story that God himself is writing. And that, that's the burden of chapter 6. We could, we could stop there and just leave it there. That, that's what God is doing. Moses is drowning in his own story. And God is like, come and take part in my much bigger story that I'm writing. And that story is the story of the God who is absolutely faithful in fulfilling every single one of his promises. Now, if you've got your Bible open there, There are 12 verses for us to look at here in chapter 6. But they break into three parts. The first part is just verse 1, where God gives Moses like a headline, immediate response to his outburst in order to comfort him. So we'll get to that. That's part 1. Then in verses 2 to 5, you'll see there that God then... um, unpacks that one verse headline with further details to encourage Moses personally. He's speaking to Moses personally. And then finally, in verses 6, 7, and 8, God then gives Moses words to tell the despondent people. And there's a wonderful therefore at the start of verse 6. So God gives him a headline in verse 1, then he unpacks it in verses 2 to 5, and then he says, in the light of all of that, tell the people this you get that 12 verses three parts so let's take these in turn and we'll see what God says and I've tried to put a little thing in brackets that says part one in the verses so you can follow so here's the first part this is just verse one you see the little part one verse one up there just to keep us on track this first the first word of verse one well, the first, first word of God in verse 1 is the word now, which is brilliant, isn't it? All this stuff happens, Moses explodes in God's face, and the first word God says is now. <laughs> this word, in a sense, is the hinge of the whole story. Everything has fallen apart. This is the darkest, most unfixable moment. Moses is weak and has failed. The people have lost hope. It feels like it's all over. And God's immediate response to Moses' cry is to say, Now, now you'll see what I can do. That's that's verse 1. That's the headline. Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. The point is, It's been a pitch black night, but the sun is going to rise. That's what God's saying in verse 1 to Moses here. 
God begins by saying, watch this. Pharaoh is not the real king, Moses. You know that, don't you? I am. He has done his worst. But now you will see what I do to him. And in that you will see that I am still God. And no one has knocked me off my throne. And look at what God says to comfort Moses. When I finish with Pharaoh, when I finish with Pharaoh, he won't just be letting you go. Look at this one. He won't just be letting you go because of my mighty hand. He will be driving you out. You get that? He'll be driving you out of his country. He'll be so sick of you when I'm done with him that he'll like be forcing you to leave. He'll be driving you out of his country. That means, by the way, that this slavery and this country of Egypt is not your true home, Moses. I'm taking you all somewhere else. What, I mean, what a headline that is in verse 1. So there's the now. Okay, part two. I'm going to call this, I am the Lord. Let me just build up this for you. This is important. In verses two to five, God then expands on this stunning headline with some divine logic. This is God's way of thinking, not our way of thinking. This is God here. And his logic stretches right back into the past. And it anticipates a glorious future. And God begins it all by reminding Moses that he is the Lord. Look at verse 2. God also said to Moses, what? I am the Lord. This is so important that God says it four times here. In fact, God begins with it in verse 2. I am the Lord. And it's the very last thing he says in verse 8. I am the Lord. And in verse 7, God says, once you see what I'm about to do, then you will know what? That I am the Lord. This is an I am the Lord sandwich filled with I am the Lord. Can we say that? It, that that's what it is. I am the Lord is what God wants Moses to hear loud and clear. Now let's trace and build up the logic of this. First of all, I want you to see that when God says, I am the Lord, this is God's way of saying, I made an agreement that I intend to keep. Now, over the years, uh, like some of you, I, I've made a few agreements personally and, and in business too. I, I have a mortgage on my house for one thing. Um, and when Jane and I signed our mortgage agreement, the mortgage provider HSBC in our case. Well, I'll have to shoot you now. I've told you that. HSBC, our mortgages with. They sent Jane and I a letter, and it has mine and Jane's names on one side of the agreement, and it has HSBC's kind of name on the other side of the agreement. There are two parties to this contract, and their names are on the agreement. When God says, I am the Lord, what he's really saying to Moses is, my name's on the contract. That's what God said. We'll see it on the next slide here. The, I am the Lord means my name's on the contract, Moses. Don't ever forget that. I'm not about to go bust. I'll never run out of resources. No one is ever going to put me out of business, Moses. No one is going to conquer me and knock me off my throne. I am the Lord and my name is on the contract. All of this means that no one will stop me from keeping my side of the deal. Why? Did I mention I am the Lord? That's what God's saying to Moses. Now, notice that in verse 3, God talks about the people's ancestors or forefathers. Some people call them the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his son. But look at verse 4, what God says to Moses here. I also established 
my covenant with them. So stretching back into the past, God had made an agreement with these patriarchs, these individuals in the past. And what did the contract say? You've got 25 years to repay. It's 5%. Into, no. The answer is in verse 4. God had promised to give them the land of Canaan where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived as foreigners. At the time they lived there, these individual men lived in Canaan, but it wasn't their land. They didn't own it. They had no permanent home. But even then, God promised these individuals that one day their descendants would not just live in this land, they would own it. God would give it to them as their own land. Now, I want you to remember, just let's step back a minute and remember that this present moment is miserable. Well, we'll kick on a couple of slides here, actually. You see here, promises to the forefathers, fulfillment to come in the promised land. But this present moment is a miserable one. They're in slavery in Egypt. But if God has promised them a land, this means that their slavery in Egypt cannot last forever. And indeed, God goes on to say in verse 5 that he's heard their groaning and he's remembered his, his contract, his covenant agreement with their ancestors. God is not saying here that he'd forgotten the contract and left it in a drawer somewhere. What he's trying to say to Moses is, this was a covenant of love. I loved these people. I've chosen them and I care about them and I've entered into a contract with them and I promised them this and now I've not forgotten that contract. I hear their groaning and my heart is moved with pity to come and the basis for my present action is the fact that I made a contract with them in the past. Now verse 3 actually is very important in Exodus. I think more ink has been spilt trying to understand verse 3 than almost any other verse in Exodus. So we're not going to like link here, but this is what it's about. God, look at verse 3. God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. They, these individuals knew God in Genesis hundreds of years before as God Almighty. The Hebrew name is El Shaddai. They knew God as the all-sufficient, rock-like God who would provide all that they needed. They knew him and they trusted him and they loved him. But in verse 3, what's going on is that God is saying they didn't really know the meaning of his other name. And this is the name that God gave to Moses in chapter 3. It is the name, I am who I am. It's the name that we, we pronounce Yahweh. And the reason this verse is slightly controversial is because these patriarch guys, they did know the name Yahweh. This is not a new name, just an exodus. The name Yahweh appears in Genesis, and these guys knew the name Yahweh. So this verse at first seems to be a contradiction. But, I, but what God is saying is that He's saying, although they knew God in that past, and although they were aware of his name, Yahweh, they did not fully appreciate then what God was really like and what that name really meant. That's what God's saying in verse 3. They did know me, they did love me, they did trust me, but they didn't know me like you're going to know me now. Here's the thing, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had only known God partially as the promise maker. They never got to see the fulfillment of what God promised. But now, in this exact dark moment, God would go on to reveal himself more fully to be the promise keeper. God is telling Moses that this Exodus generation demoralized and broken as they are, would be the first generation to witness God's mighty, saving power. What they see next will reveal to them 
the full meaning of the name Yahweh and the full content of that awesome character. The Exodus story is about to explain God's name and fill it with meaningful, awesome content. So God's logic here to Moses is that as the Lord, he'd made an agreement and that that contract or covenant was the basis on which he was now coming to act in power to rescue them from slavery. And as a result of that, everyone would know what his name meant and what his character is. I am the Lord, the gracious, loving, faithful God who comes in power to rescue his people and to fulfill every single one of his promises to them. Are you still still with me? Here's the last part, part three. I've called this, I will. This is verses six to eight. We're nearly done. That therefore in verse six is really important. Everything that God has said to Moses here, I am the Lord. Therefore, go and tell the people this. God explains his reasoning to Moses and then says, on this basis, go and tell them this. And what should Moses say? Well, first of all, he should remind them too, I am the Lord. But then God gives this incredible list of I wills. There are seven, seven in total. Look at them with me here from verse six. And if you've got seven fingers, you can count them. I, this is what God says. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I'd love us to have more time to think about that line, but we haven't got time. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then God takes a breath and, and has a little pause and says, then you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the yoke of Egypt. And then God comes to number six. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then number seven, I will give it to you as a possession. This has got to qualify as one of the most glorious passages in the whole Bible. God comes to Moses and gives him seven I wills. Not you will or they will. I will. I am the Lord and this is what I'm going to do. This is a rescue plan that is entirely God's initiative and entirely God's execution. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his love, his power, his wisdom. The people here couldn't even understand it or grasp it at first. When Moses tells this, they don't even hear it because they're so discouraged. But that doesn't stop God revealing himself to them as the God who makes and who keeps his promises and who comes to powerfully rescue his people. Can you see it? Moses, when immersed in his own disorientating little story, was saying, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with you, God? What's wrong with me? That was the shape of his disappointment. But look at the shape of God's response. These seven I wills basically boil down into three promises. And here they are. This is what God said. These seven I wills boil down into three. I will set you free. I will make you my very own. And I will bring you safely home. This is the God who brings liberation this is the God who draws us into relationship with him. And this is the God who secures our future security and glory. Friends, this is the shape of the Exodus story. But isn't it also the shape of the gospel of Christ that it foreshadows? This is what God is always doing for his people through the Lord Jesus, setting us free, making us his own and bringing us home. 
ultimately to glory. Well, we're, we're done. I, I love the fact that God can handle Moses. But the real encouragement is that God draws Moses' little story up into his much bigger story. There's a, there's a well-known Bible commentator called Alec Mottier. And he sums this up so well. He said this, Moses' despondency made no difference. The Lord did not tell him to cheer up, brace up, or get a grip. He did not invite or even here promise any change in Moses, but rather renewed the revelation of himself. I am the Lord and I will. And it was Moses, warts and all, who was caught up into the divine plan. How do we cope? How do we cope with crushing disappointment? How do you know? How do we know that God is for us? How do we know that he will bring us home? I, I, I want to say to you that with tenderness and patience, God reminds us, I am the Lord. My name is on the contract. Heather, I am the Lord. My name is on the contract. And that means I will be faithful in fulfilling every single promise I have made by giving my son Jesus to you to be your eternal saviour. Let's pray, shall we? We are going to sing in a moment. And, uh, Rich will come up to lead us in that. But let's bow. Let's take a moment just to reflect in the quietness on, on the things that might be disappointing us or perplexing us or frustrating us. And let us be encouraged afresh that God isn't standing over us with a clipboard, but that he is patient and kind. He is growing us and shaping us. But more than that, he's drawing us into his big story. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is so relevant so powerful, so insightful, so encouraging. And we bow in awe before your great name, acknowledging that you are the Lord. And we thank you that your name is on the contract. We thank you that you are the God who says, I will. Father, would you help us in our hearts, even this afternoon, as we respond to your word, to say to you, yes, Lord, I do. I love you. I love you. I trust you. I bring my disappointments to you. Please lift me into your big story. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.